so orms orms yes uh, first i need to just get this out of my system orm in swedish if you didn't do the the word orm it means yeah. snake yeah and i find this really funny maybe i shouldn't so you use a snake to translate a database to some object you can interact with. Uh, isn't it good that I'm not a stand-up comedian? <laughs> I think it's... Uh, in your defense, you're working in Python, which... I do. Where it the joke is sort of at least multiple levels and has more potential. Um, yeah. Yeah, but ob object relational mapper. Uh, something I think we'll we'll need to talk about is so objects uh, and mapping to objects. Is this a thing we do in functional programming? Really? Uh, Kinda. But, but let's let's start <laughs> let's start somewhere where we actually uh, where we actually deal with normal objects or where where the programming is object. Uh, <laughs> oriented to objects yeah um where have you been using orms i've been using orms in python actually only python this is interesting i have in okay i've used a home built one in php about a thousand years ago and for some reason i never got to use a proper orm in php uh, like an ORM that uh, I nor my colleague hadn't built themselves. So only in Python. And the ORMs I've used are uh, SQL Alchemy and Django's ORM. I don't think it has a name. It's only Django. Django ORM is yeah. what I've seen <laughs> as a name for it. Yeah. And okay. Not very inventive. Not very inventive, and it's it hints that you shouldn't pick it out of Django. You should take the whole package. We've spoken about this before. I'm totally sure about that. Yeah, I've definitely implemented some stuff where I wanted the Django ORM and not much else, and have yeah. sort of dealt with just scripts and stuff where I have the Django ORM. Um, it's meh. <laughs> I, I mean. I, so my my background in using ORMs, uh, it's, we're never gonna manage to say ORM, are, are we? I I'm never gonna say ORM. I'm gonna yeah. say ORM. It it's much more fun. Yeah. So uh, I've definitely used some PHP ORM-ish stuff. So Drupal and WordPress both have database APIs, and I'm not sure to what extent. I don't recall to which extent they feel like an ORM. I I know Drupal seven went more ORMy than Drupal six. Um, mm, cool. But yeah, uh, they were building on top of the the PHP database libraries, and some of that has received more and more. What is it? PDO, PDO. I don't remember ORM stuff. Yeah. Um. Then I've definitely uh, built my own sort of database library stuff at times in PHP, uh, but I don't think that turned into any anything really 
I'd, that I'd really call a norm. Uh, and then I've used Django and SQL Alchemy on the Python front. I have used some assorted database libraries that are probably not ORMs, sort of Elasticsearch's uh, client libraries. I wouldn't call those ORMs, but they're they're not not ORMs, I guess. I, I think they are missing the R part. Yeah. They have an object mapping, or maybe they are just objects. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I have used some database stuff in csharp.net at some point as well, but I think we used the dapper there, and that's more... Yeah, it does map to objects, I guess. So I guess that's a very lightweight ORM where you still write straight up SQL, uh, which I thought was surprisingly nice and... Uh, nice and tight for for being like csharp.net nice uh, and then I should probably get into sort of ecto and elixir which is not an ORM I would argue because there are no objects it's the, um, they are using a pattern there a pattern with a name from the pattern book right I don't know the pattern book very well so like repository pattern or something oh yeah there there's a repo in there that's that's for sure um cool but what would you describe the role of the orm as being if we sort of sort of start from the django orm because i think that will translate fairly straight over to sort of laravel and ruby land if not necessarily over to java or uh, whatever that that place has in orm i think they have yeah they i i am certain that they have tons of them yeah <laughs> i've actually been told that they have tons of them <laughs> uh, <laughs> but i'm not sure that the uh, that the scope of the django orm necessarily or so I, I think it's fairly tight and lean compared to some ORMs in enterprise. Maybe. Yeah. But yeah. But the Django ORM has a fairly significant API, I think. It has. It's I think it's it's interesting. ORMs the <laughs> from the limited experience of ORMs. Hmm. I have Oh, I've played with the Diesel uh, query builder, which isn't an o ORM but which isn't an ORM, ha, uh, but it's uh, a query builder. Uh, so half of the stuff. And I've also played with the Zelda from Haskell. Uh, it's lovely and strange and fun. Um, so, yeah, with that out of the way, I think an ORM has three purposes. Let's see if I can <laughs> enumerate them all. <laughs> I like how you say the number up front, uh, and now you're going to have to have to stick to that. Yeah, this is this is the best um, high stakes enumeration. <laughs> so, the first one is the query builder part, uh, which you. Um, can break out of the ORM. Uh, so it's basically a nicer way of writing SQL. If you don't like SQL or think it is uh, um, 
doesn't map well to your understanding of stuff. Uh, this works for a short while, and then you need to understand the underlying database anyway. So, uh, um, but you can get uh, remove some of the more uh, verbose and weird corners of the SQL syntax. So that's the first part, query builder. Second part is to map what comes back from uh, the query. So if I have a, a list of user accounts with blog posts and comments and all that, I can map that in a way that corresponds to my objects. Huh. So that's nice. Um, and this is a can of worms. A can of worms. Um, <laughs> 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 You'll never get away with that. <laughs> not not with that, but from that. Ha! <laughs> I'll always get get away with it. Um So, and the third is Yeah, what is the third? I'm curious. Yeah. Everything should have three main <laughs> purposes. Uh Okay. I, I need to be really sneaky here. Schema definitions? Models? Something like that? Yeah. Or is that part of the object relational mapping? What, it that could was be. number two. Uh, but it, yeah, it's kind of fussy here. So it's one of the great things with the Django Worm uh, is that it gives you almost for free migrations and you write your definitions once in the models.py files and then done with it. And I think that's that's just so good. Yeah, I think most modern ORMs also need to handle migrations or tend to also handle migrations. So if you need a number three, I think migration sort of ends up there. But technically, I would guess like much like the query builder thing, it's not technically necessary to be qualified as an ORM, but who would want to use the ORM that does not offer these things? Only very particular people, I think. Yeah, if they have very particular needs. Maybe they are already using a migration library and write their migrations in SQL. Yeah. Uh, I have Now I have another third one. <laughs> I think we're up into five or something by now. Yeah, the but <laughs> three final version two. Yeah, the the third is important, so we do it three times. Um, it's it's also one that I don't think is necessarily true, but in the early days of uh, Ruby on Rails and Django, one of the unique selling points for the ORMs were that you could just change the database. So I could develop locally on my SQLite and then when everything works locally I push the big red deploy button and it deploys to Postgres and everything just works. And of course it doesn't. No. It crashes because I SQLite and Postgres even though they are somewhat in the same mm, 
they, they look kind of like each other here and there. Yeah, if you squint. Yeah, but they are not the same. They don't have the same features. No. Uh, you can certainly build uh, applications that exercise only the common uh, feature set. For between these two databases, for example, but yeah, but then why would you change from SQLite to Postgres, really? Yeah, that that transition is is generally not for free. Um, <clears throat> they make it significantly easier in the sense that you probably don't have to change all your code. Uh, yeah, it will still be a painful transition, probably. Yeah. Definitely. And I think it's more important as a feature to be able to get started quickly without installing Postgres, for example, or uh, in many cases, just being able to uh, select whatever database it is you want to use between SQLite, MySQL, and Postgres, um, rather than like, oh, well, in the case of sort of WordPress and uh, Once Upon a Time Drupal, I think they've, I think they've officially support both MySQL and Postgres, but also nice. I bet you have a lot of contrib mu modules that do not gracefully support Postgres. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that problem. Yeah. But um, for most of these ORMs and most of these web frameworks that run with them, uh, they have the option of choosing between, generally between MySQL and Postgres, maybe Microsoft SQL as well. And the choice is definitely there initially. Uh, the the idea that you would willy-nilly swap databases is is mostly a pipe dream. It's possible to do, but it's not that easy. Yeah, I did it for a while because, I don't know, it said so on the tin. Yeah, I mean, be, between development and production for SQLite and Postgres, I think you can push that fairly far before you start feeling the pain. Yep. But yeah, I think I think you've sort of uh, covered the usual feature set of an ORM. Cool. Are we done now? Oh, oh yeah. Bye. No. Bye. Uh, no, I was I was thinking. What do you think are good things about ORMs, and what are the bad things about ORMs? Maybe start with the good. Yeah, I I, I have a huge. It's not an elephant in the room even it's like it's like this monster eating your your sofa that's the the huge one it's the n plus one queries yeah because they show up in so strange places and all over the place and I've taken down so many servers with them uh, and it's just frustrating yeah so this term an n plus one query. Uh, started showing up for me mostly around uh, when Ruby started gaining popularity with Rails. And the concept of an N plus one query was certainly around before then. But I think there was a, a different kind of awareness that what kind of queries you were making and how many of them. Yeah. Um how would you describe an n plus one query? An n plus one query. Let's get back to posts and comments. The user account example. Yes, posts and comments. It's the hello world of databases. Yeah. And 
on the web. So let's say we want to show all users with the, all their posts or the titles of the posts and how many comments there are on each post. Not too unreasonable. Uh, so then we, in a template, in the good old days, we put a loop where we loop over all the users. Our ORM provides us with a, a user object or a user collection, and we can loop over the collection. And for each user, we can uh, render a sub-template with uh, the relevant information about the user, like username and name and things like that, and also a list of all posts. So then we need to loop through the posts for that user and also get how many comments there are for each post uh, and the title for each post, of course. Uh, and this isn't to... There are no warning flags waving about here until you've, you've encountered this a couple of times uh, or until I encountered it a couple of times. Um, so the big thing here is that in a naive ORM will uh, get all the users for you from the database. So far one query. And then one query. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Are we done yet? <laughs> and then for each user, uh, send a new query to the database to get all the posts and how many comments there are for each post. No, we're, we're not naive enough. So it will get all the posts as a, uh, a collection. Let us loop through that, and for each post, it will send another query to the database to see how many comments are there for each post. Yeah, so the idea here is that we have, have this tree where <clears throat> we hit the first user, we get the list of posts for that user. We run through each of those posts, getting a list of comments for that post. Yeah. And... Um, suddenly we have an explosion of queries. Yeah, I think it's n plus one squared or n squared plus one. Yeah, I've always been confused by the terminology n plus one because this feels like it should be, there should be multiplication or uh, to the power of somewhere in there. Yeah. But uh, for, for short, people just call them n plus one and that has confused me because I, I wasn't there when, when the terminology was set. I mean, either. I was not. We can only guess. Yeah, I was not consulted. Yeah. Uh, and this doesn't really occur if you don't have an ORM. Or am I my <laughs> a bit too... So it only occurs with an ORM that is aggressively developer-friendly, I think. An ORM that assumes that you want it to lazy load 
or eager load, uh, but probably lazy, um, all relations as you access them. Yeah. Which Django does, I believe, or used to do. Yeah, used it to does. do when I used it, and probably still does. And I, I'm, yeah, it does until you call select related or the other one. Yeah, I would expect that uh, Rails is doing something similar with Active Record. Uh, I have not seen this happen, or rather, this does not happen in Ecto. Uh, for Elixir. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, if you're trying to access uh, an association on your on one of your schema structs that has not been loaded, you will simply have an unloaded association there and you will not be able to iterate it as a collection. Huh, cool. Or an enumerable. Uh, you are supposed to explicitly preload them. That does save some some headaches and give others. Yeah, uh, of course it's less convenient for the for the quick hack case. Yep. Uh, but generally, it's not super hard to tell it to like, okay, yeah, get me those as well. Um, yeah. So figuring out figuring out that sort of stuff. Something I've seen with Django that I believe is fairly common with other ORMs is that it integrates tightly with the web framework to, for example, couple REST resources with with the data model from the ORM or yep. couple forms with the data model of the ORM. And this is incredibly useful and sort of bang for buck. This is what makes developing with something like Django very quick, very fast and effective. Yeah, you push the model form button and you're done. <laughs> yeah, and then you have a model form and it does what yep. the model says and then you modify uh, if you if you want to change anything. Uh, in Ecto, this isn't how it works. Uh, not explicitly, or rather, there's a layer in between, which I find interesting. What's the layer? Yeah, so in Ecto, you don't have a model, you have a schema. Uh, that's uh, that's almost a distinction without a difference. It's different terminology. It used to have models. They changed it, changed it to schemas because they wanted to distinguish it from probably from how sort of rails and stuff works. Um, and they are pushing an approach, sort of a, an architecture and design philosophy that that tells you not to put a lot of logic near your schema. Interesting. The only thing that really uh, ideally should live with your schema is our change sets. And a change set is an encapsulation of sort of data mapping and validation. It is not a form building tool, but it can be used to represent forms if you squint and use it that way. Um, <laughs> so hmm. uh, Phoenix, the web framework for Elixir has, has support for representing change sets almost automatically as forms but 
what it actually does, what it, what a change set does is it takes in a bunch of parameters and a schema and it will, according to however you decided to set up the change set, attempt to cost any fields that you have that you have said cost these in this particular change set. So for example, for our post, we want to cost the title, the body, and the author. Uh, and we have them defined in the schema. Then it will take whatever inputs it's getting and attempt to cost them to proper types. So for example, sometimes you get things from a web form and web forms are stringly typed. <laughs> Yes. So all your numbers coming in over query params or uh, post data tends to be strings. Yes. So the number five is usually a string. And if you want it to be something else, you're going to have to cost it. This would cost it to an integer for a field that's defined as an integer. Will it also throw some kind of error if it can't be costed? Yes. So it will, it will cost all the fields that are present. Um, and if any of those costings fail, uh, it will uh, it will return a new change set which has error messages in it, error definitions and error messages. Ah. And uh, if you want to require certain fields to be present in the in the update, you can add. Uh, you can add a validate required call, which will and tell it which fields are required in this change set. So you build a sort of pipeline of validation through this change set. And the output of it all is just another change set. Uh, you can throw this change set at repo insert or repo update. And it will, if the change set does not have errors commit those to the database or try to put them into the database. Nice. But uh, it will also happily give you uh, give you errors for whatever sort of failures you have. It will also, there's also some support for encapsulating database errors. So if the database tells you like, no, this is a duplicate of a unique key, you bastard. Uh, mm. you can uh, put some calls in the in the change set to say okay we're looking for we're making a uniqueness check here we want to validate that this is unique so instead of getting a, a database error a runtime exception error you can get it into your change set uh, in that way so there, there's some some neat functionality for integrating with databases there, but the a change set, an active change set can be used entirely without the database, just for casting data into a known format and uh, providing validation errors if if it doesn't map. That's very nice. Yeah. So Ecto in itself. Is supposedly just a data mapper. An EctoSQL, which is a companion package, companion library, that's what I would call the, the ORM of the Elixir Phoenix space. But 
there are no objects. <laughs> there are structs and instances of <laughs> so there are instances of structs which are very similar to objects if aside from not having methods. Ah, so they are some kind of record type with the um... They are dictionaries of a certain type. Cool. So uh, they they are they are dictionaries with an identity or whatever. Uh, so Elixir has a map type, which is the the dictionary, the hash map, the associative array. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know the kind. Yeah. Yep. It has it has arbitrary keys, often strings or atoms in this case. Um, and a struct always has atom keys, and it has an enumerated amount of them, or a, a known set. Okay. Usually. Yeah. I think I think you can break that rule, but you're not supposed to. <laughs> so if you try to uh, set a key in a struct that the struct doesn't have, it goes boom. Yeah, yeah, th then it should complain. And you can enforce some things like, okay, this key is actually required when instantiating the struct and that sort of thing. So there are a few... Oh, nice. There's a bit of sugar on top of on top of a map but it's basically a map with a with a secret uh, extra value um, that tells it that it's a struct so you can map between maps and structs fairly easily very nice yeah. um so ecto uses uh, structs for for schema definitions uh, and a bunch of macros to build these structs so so it has a nice uh, language for, or a nice structure to define them. And a very similar structure to define migrations. And there are generators for making these automatically. Um, so it, it has a lot of the facilities that you'd expect from, from something like Django or Rails, but it sort of draws a line at some of the magical stuff where sort of lazy loading, for example. For one, there's no facility in a struct to say, okay, do this if this key is sort of empty or accessed. You, you can't write a magical function in the way that you can in Python. So, so it doesn't have the, the problem with lazy loading uh, misbehaving in that way. But also, it doesn't have the conveniences of lazy loading in that sense. There, there's sort of a philosophical bent, I think, to to Elixir and Ecto, where they they really prefer explicit, uh, convenient, but explicit. <laughs> yeah, um, which I mostly like. Uh, sometimes it's annoying. I will say that of all the tooling I'm working with in Elixir. Ecto is probably the tooling I like the least. Oh, shots fired. Uh, <laughs> why? Uh, oh, yes. Very dramatic. Um, yeah. Hot take. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's actually much of Ecto's fault. I think some of it might come down to Ecto using macros a little bit much. I am pretty good with the Elixir, uh, with the Elixir syntax and the Elixir language. But in Ecto, I sometimes really confuse myself 
because it uses macros that behave in a way that's a little bit different from most of the language. So it's almost Elixir, but not quite. Yeah, the, uh, parts of it's uh, DSL for for creating queries, for example. Yeah, uh, and I'm not sure I love that. And you can mostly avoid using the DSL parts, but yeah, yeah. So there are some things I'm I'm not super fond of with using Ecto, and I found I found Ecto harder to learn than some of the other stuff. And I don't think this is particularly Ecto's fault. I think it's mostly a matter of... I think I had a similar problem with Django Orm, but it's also made things so much simpler for me than any database library I had used previously. So I mostly happily dove into its entire API. Yeah. But any ORM needs to have an immense... API surface if it wants to if it wants to expose all of SQL or most of SQL or even like 20% the useful 20% of SQL oh yes and this is like the the small cousin monster of the n plus one query monster it's that if you want to have your ORM to be useful you need to replicate SQL, and preferably in a composable way. Yeah, I, I seem to recall you at some point telling me that you weren't a fan of SQL Alchemy. Yeah. And I will say that SQL Alchemy, if you compare it to the Django Orm, has uh, the capacity to do basically everything that you could want to do with SQL. Some of it is incredibly obtuse and incredibly complex and really, really finicky to get right. And some of it will perform horribly because of reasons. Um, but there are some things I don't think you could actually do without dropping into SQL in the Django Worm, which SQL Alchemy will let you do. Yeah. And it's I'm I'm torn on if that's a good idea to have to put that much functionality into the ORM or if it's a better idea to give up and drop into a SQL. Yeah, and I've definitely rubbed up against that limit uh, significantly. <clears throat> so I had a very, very finicky uh, multi-table join that I, I was working on with SQL Alchemy at some point. Yeah. And... I needed to very specifically load certain relationships in certain ways to make SQL Alchemy produce the correct query. And at a certain point, I was like, huh, I should probably just rip this out and make it make a normal SQL query because building the SQL query would be simpler. Uh, or so I thought, <laughs> and then I tried. Yeah. <laughs> because, so this was... This will sort of get your news feed in a, in a system for, well, it was the preschool documentation system. I blogged about it. Um, yeah. And it had, it had a, uh, a query that was get posts. And it had logic for making sure that you only got the, the stuff you had access to. Huh. So it needed to check whether 
you were of this role and had a relationship with this and this entity in the system that were connected to the post in this and this and this manner. Um, while also when pulling the post, it wanted to also pull all the related information to avoid n plus one queries. <laughs> yep. Such as categories, uh, tags, uh, files, pictures. There were so many things to pull in. And wow. I will tell you stick a few left outer joins and uh, Postgres will throw its indexes out and just yeah this is a this is a full table sequential scan and that was a big <laughs> table <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so i had to step very ginger gingerly there and building these sort of uh, uh, these filters these weird uh, statements that excluded data that you did not have access to that was incredibly sensitive because if you screwed it up you had a personal information leak basically wow it's yeah you <laughs> and trying to build them from sql and like building the text strings in sql is not necessarily easier than fighting with sql alchemy so it, it was really, really, not in the sweet spot, I would say in the rough spot between choosing between these two. <laughs> the salty spot. Between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Wow. It's... I I think last time we talked, I talked about Postgres. Yeah. Um, and... I built all the backend in uh, SQL. Yeah. And the pros procedural version of it, which is horrid in its own way, but really powerful. And so I got used to handling SQL, and it's um, it's an acquired taste. Yeah, it's a really special language to try to do some things in, and very elegant for other things. Yeah. It's really well mapped to a domain. And I. One of the things I learned is that when you have the whole of SQL at your disposal, some of the really gnarly things become easier. You could, for instance, make a function that when you call it, it behaves like a table. Yeah. So. You could make one function for each of those uh, get posts, table, stuff. Yeah. I know words. Uh, <laughs> where, where you give the which the user is. Mm. And then use that to do the filtering. So you get a filtered table. It will not exist really. It will only look like. Yeah, a you generate an in-memory table, sort of, uh, based on based on the restrictions. Yeah. Yes, and it will be optimized away in the call and so on if you're lucky. So, in that way, you can can take all the complexity and and work ship away at it one chunk at a time. But 
that means that you need access to SQL and all the power and all the madness that comes with it. Yeah, and sort of building a raw SQL query, I'm I'm perfectly capable of doing it, but building one well from an application language uh, by building it as a string is something I prefer when the <laughs> query builder can do for me. Yeah. And that's where I think all ORMs run into this challenge because that's essentially what all of them are trying to do. They're trying to make SQL approachable from your preferred language. Yes. And none of your preferred languages, aside from SQL, is SQL. Uh, most of them are not well suited to to express sort of selecting and joining and joining and joining uh, and then filtering away the duplicates and filtering away. Um, and the, o- the query builders and the ORMs tend to do this for you so that you don't get duplicates, for example, of comments just because... <laughs> Just because of how a join works, which is basically you multiply this table by that table and then you remove everything you don't like. Yeah, Cartesian product to the rescue. Whoop whoop. And yeah, I think most of most of the ORMs I've seen have had things that that don't look great, that don't feel ideal where you can see that like this is friction between the application language and SQL. For example, the Django ORM tries to be very lean and nice. Like it tries to be very succinct and not very heavyweight. You do, don't spend a lot of time hanging out in the ORM documentation ideally. Yeah. Uh, so it has stuff I believe like if you if I wanted to filter on uh, a tag label and filter that from a list, I would use something like label underscore underscore in, I believe. Yeah. Uh, rather than in, for example, SQL Alchemy, that would be um, then I'm building some qu- sort of query and using an in the class or an in function um i think the in function has a tendency to show up yeah i also remember using the and and or functions a lot yeah sql alchemy has i think it has support for two ways to write queries at least by now uh, which doesn't make anything any simpler (laughs) yeah and i believe i used both of them with great success sometimes Uh, because for certain things, um, it ma- it makes the it has a similar API to the Django ORM for doing simple queries, simple uh, fetching things in a simple way. But then the, it also provides the fully flexible. You can basically write query, write your entire SQL query, but in Python. Yeah. API, but that is much more complex. So now, so they have implemented all of SQL or the relevant bits in Python. Mostly, yeah. Or build, sort of building <laughs> the queries in Python. In, in that, I think uh, SQL Alchemy is more powerful than the Django ORM. The Django ORM is more approachable. And neither of them 
can fully uh, can sort of fully manage SQL because SQL will not be tamed. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, and I I think that's uh, that's really the reason why I've found Ecto to be less fun and approachable than most other parts of Elixir. Not by a, a lot. I don't dislike it particularly. But it really... I think it sort of suffers in the same way that SQL Alchemy suffers from... So SQL Alchemy feels complex. Yeah. Uh, Django ORM feels limiting if you're good at SQL. Yep. And Ecto to me feels like some of these some of these things is where they're trying to to be Django ORM and be nice and friendly and some of these things feel like they are trying to be SQL Alchemy and giving all the uh, flexibility and it just like um, just like the those other ORMs Ecto does not fully fully map frictionlessly to SQL. Yeah. Um, hmm. But it Ecto is written in Elixir, so it's another paradigm. Yeah. It's the functional programming paradigm. So how how would you say that Elixir maps to SQL or uh, relational databases uh, compared to, say, Python to relational databases? It ends up being fairly similar to me. Um so a query is a struct that you keep building on when you uh, so maybe I'm starting the query by saying from this table uh, because with Ecto much like with SQL Alchemy you can use it without having the models and the schemas in place yeah uh, you could just use it as a query builder for for database you already have when you want to add a filter to that in SQL Alchemy, I think that's a, so, the sort of fluid interface, fluid API, where you do dot where, and it will it will keep building your sort of. I guess it turns into a structure of objects or something. I'm not sure what it builds under the under the hood, but I I bet it builds something like a query object with a bunch of query a bunch of field objects and a bunch of filter objects and da 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 da, da. Yeah. while uh, in Elixir you sort of take this query struct and you pipe it through um, through the where function and that updates your struct to something else to have a where clause with these uh, these particular parameters uh, so basically, all of them are reducers. Cool. So you just keep you just keep iterating on the same data structure until you have a query you like, and then you send it to the repo to to execute. Nice. And then you get back a collection of records or collection of structs. Uh, yeah, typically that would be a collection of structs, probably a collection of maps if you don't have a schema defined for it. But yeah, something like that. Oh, seems reasonable. Nice. Yeah, and so in that sense, it it works pretty much the same. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it uses 
widely unexpected uh, functional programming paradigms to solve it. Uh, to some extent, these are one of the times where if you squint, there's not much difference between Elixir's functional programming and an object-oriented uh, programming paradigm because huh. so you have your your struct which sort of feels like a class and the struct yeah. is a module so uh, so so the struct is always defined as a module and uh, that module can have functions typically those functions would take the struct as their first argument hmm uh, and if you, if you decided to call hmm. that argument self coming in, you would be reading Python. Yeah. Wow. But that that's a Pythonism. Uh, not every language does the self thing. Yeah. So so let's a module. Isn't that like a file in Elixir? Because that's it doesn't have to be a file, but typically it's a file. Oh, okay, because that's how it works in Erlang. Yeah, I I don't know if Erlang can define a submodule in a module. I haven't tried. <laughs> I don't think it can. It's a very small language. But on the other hand, maybe they built it anyway. <laughs> yeah, but in that way, uh, you can, in many cases, use Elixir sort of like... Um, sort of like uh, an object-oriented language, but it tends to be a lot more explicit because you cannot modify the state without passing it in and then returning it. <laughs> so you still get all the advantages of of uh, sort of purity and and limited scope, like no shared state. And that's lovely. Uh, yeah, but it's not that foreign and. When I've worked with uh, some other functional languages, I've generally found them harder to read because they are a little bit more foreign. So for me, it has probably mostly been helpful. That's like, okay, but structs aren't so scary. Uh, <laughs> we can work with structs. We know them. Yeah, it, it took a while before I actually found out like, okay, but but a function that takes, that takes in a struct uh, and maybe modifies it, and then returns it, it's essentially a reducer. Okay, yeah, okay. That, uh, that's a good word for that, I guess. <laughs> Intr so a reducer, let, what did you say that it did? It took something, or is it always a struct? It takes, um, uh, basically, it, it takes a, a value. It doesn't have to be a struct, I imagine. Like, it can be a map. So... Uh, if we're talking about functional programming, reduce yeah. on any list or enumerable thing yeah. would mean you go through the list an item at a time and then you you um, you usually take in a value uh, that will be your accumulator and then you will accumulate into that. So yeah. For example, if you wanted to count the number of items in a list, uh, you would go through the items and in, for each item you would increment your accumulator and it would start at zero, ideally. Exactly. 
But it can also be that, for example, you have a list of uh, 500 items and you want to sort them into, uh, into a dictionary based on some value in the item. Yeah, that works too. Yeah. And then, so generally what a reduce function is for is to take a, a list of items or an enumerable of items and return a different number of items. Yes. A different shape of object, while a map will always return the same number of objects. Yep. And as far as I understand this sort of thing, uh, the formalities of it is not my my strong suit. Uh, but a filter, which is a very common, like if you look at any API that includes map, reduce, it usually has filter as well. Yeah. But filter is a reducer in my book. I don't see how it's not. It is indeed. Uh, also, you can implement map in terms of reduce. Yeah, I, I don't see why you couldn't. Um, so, but then all bets are off on the behavior. You cannot get the behavior by simply looking at it. So reduce is is sort of the most the most powerful uh, thing to apply to something because it's very flexible in that way. But yeah. I, I think a reducer. I don't know if that's the sort of formal definition of a reducer, but I imagine it. it it's a a thing that takes takes a type of thing and returns the same type of thing. Not necessarily. Okay. It depends. I imagine you know this stuff better than I do. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe there's a, a stricter definition of reducer in Elixir land than it is in Haskell land. Probably not. So give me your definition. Uh, a definition of a reducer or a fold is... Don't bring the folds into this. I've never figured those out. <laughs> they are the... <laughs> folds are reduce, but with a shorter name. <laughs> and you can fold from different directions, because why not? Uh, but they are exactly what you said. They take a function... Uh, and that function takes a one element and an accumulator, and it returns the accumulator. But the accumulator can be of another type. For instance, if you wanted to put something in a dictionary, but you loop over a list, or you apply reduce to a list, yeah, then the result is another type. But uh, the function that's called on every item... Yep. I think that's what I've heard called a reducer. Is that the reducer? Interesting. I haven't heard that term before. <laughs> yeah. I I get this stuff from Bruce Tate's... Um, he talks about a pattern he likes for Elixir code um, that he uses in his trainings and stuff. Okay. And it's... Uh, let's see. It's uh, construct reduce... Reduce, reduce, uh, convert, basically. Now, <laughs> uh, it always starts with a with constructing something and then a number of reducers. And then, uh, yeah, I think convert is what he usually uses. As, um, so he calls it CRC, com construct, reduce, convert. Cool. 
and this fits very well with how pipes work in Elixir as well, yeah. where you'd ideally, for most operations that you want to model in a nice clean way, it's pretty nice if you can first create a struct or map that matches what you're, that sort of embodies what you're doing and then apply a number of operations on that that keep returning uh, a value that you can continue to work with. So if there's a, an error somewhere along the way, it would probably set an error flag or set add an error to the struct, but it wouldn't return an error. It would return uh, a struct with the error in it. Okay, so in this data pipeline way of thinking, you use the same type of struct through the whole CRC. Yeah, and sometimes uh, these are <laughs> these end up sort of fractal. One reducer in this pipeline could have CRCs in itself, of course. Wow! Uh, if you yeah. consider if you consider how plug the web server in Elixir or web framework in Elixir. Uh, it's sort of the the underlying thing between the web server and the web framework. Is it the library that knows HTTP? Yeah, basically. Cool. That one. That one has support for taking in the connect or the request, and then then in the end, it will transform that request into a response. Yeah. Uh, and all along the way. When you're dealing with plug in Phoenix, uh, you always have a connection uh, struct that you probably so so when you're parsing headers and maybe you add maybe you check the session and you want to add the user data to uh, to somewhere for every request that's coming in, that's added to to the connection struct as a science, which is just a map, basically. Ah, cool. Yeah. And so you keep, it's created when they connect. That's when the, that's when the connection is constructed then. Yeah. Uh, and then it, a bunch of reducers are called on it to assign things and set things up and maybe um, even add some errors if we have encountered some errors. And then when it turns back to turn into a response, that's when it's converted into a response or converted into, yeah, both a response and response messages, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's when it changes. Ah, uh, yeah. So until, yeah. Uh, so that that's sort of the idea for, for the scope of a web request. But also if you look at, uh, for example, a form. This this is the same sort of loop that you have in Django to some extent with forms. Yeah. So you get your query params in or your uh, post data, and you take that, and you want to shove that state or that that incoming uh, set of parameters into the correct shape. Yeah. Add more structure to it. Yeah. So you usually instantiate a form in Django. Yep. In Elixir, you would shove these into a change set. The change set will return, a, or the change set function will return a change set struct. And you might do additional things with that change set struct. For example, either apply more 
change the functions to it or uh, throw it into a repo. And if you get an error from the repo, you get an error change set. Huh. Uh, which means that you could can keep pipelining it in that way, or or at least you end up with that ends up being another another reduction on it, basically. Uh, and at the moment where you need to where you finish up this operation with the form, that's when you need to turn it into something different. Yes. So I, I think it it does make sense as a as a pattern. Uh, I don't know if it's sort of common common terminology that a that a reducer is the function you you use in in a reduce call, but I think that's sort of the idea. Um, nice. It might be common in all the places that I do not frequent. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's always like, what do you call this little bit of of the whole thing? Yeah, it's. I, I find that in functional programming, they always have a uh, an annoying name for it that I don't know. <laughs> it's I. Th- oh, let's see. I always mix this up. I don't know if it's the higher order function or if it's just the function. Uh, <laughs> a higher so, order function returns a function, right? Not necessarily. It could take a function as an argument or it could be the function that you send as an argument to another function. And I always mix these up. So I don't know. I think a higher order function is a function that returns a function. Seems legit. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know why I would care, honestly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> top of mind, yeah. I would probably call it a function that returns a function because that, that makes sense to me. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Good name for it. So ORMs, are we for or against them? I'm... I, I think I'm still for them. Uh, because they usually add nice abstractions but they are very frustrating when i know the sequel that would be generated but i'm not allowed to write it because i need to use the orm yeah yeah i i echo that i think to to put it uh, a little bit more hot takey uh ORMs, they're good because the alternative is worse. (laughs) (laughs) I don't agree with you because I like SQL. Yeah, I I also like SQL, uh, but I don't like string building SQL. No, that's really terrible. (laughs) I I have no issue writing SQL by hand to figure out something when I'm talking to a database personally. Yeah. But SQL... And I don't really mind ha- having SQL strings in code. But the moment you're doing what a query builder is made to do, which is build queries, uh, that's when it gets tricky. Because I definitely encountered people who've been of the opinion, like, no, we should just be writing SQL. Like, this is just bad abstraction um, on top of... Uh, on top of a perfectly good language. Why not just express it in SQL? Hmm. But it's non-trivial to build good 
uh, queries with that are very flexible. When you need to build a, a query multiple times in different ways, you end up building a query builder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, ORMs, they're a hell of a thing. I think the, the big challenge is just that SQL has an enormous feature set. And whenever you simplify, uh, uh, whenever you attempt to simplify that, you lose things. And uh, you will be missing some of that stuff, some of that stuff, and then you need to start adding it in, and that's when you get a big API surface. Yes, and then your thing gets complicated, and complicated things are frustrating. Yes, is this like the XKCD strip with standards? Speaking of an n plus one problem. Yeah, sort of. I think so. It's like, no, but we built this uh, this perfect ORM. It only has the SQL that you need. <laughs> but I need that one. Oh, yeah, 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 we can we can add that one. That makes sense that we will add that one. But that's the last one. <laughs> <laughs> now it's perfect. But 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 perfect. <laughs> <laughs>